Romans chapter 8, verse 31 to verse 39. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Uh, It was Socrates who once declared that the object of philosophy was that you would know yourself or know thyself. Uh, And he expanded on that by suggesting that the unexamined life was not worth living. Now, it's a fine aim, but is it even possible? Can you truly know yourself? I mean, who are you? Our sense of self, who we are, is perhaps the most important thing we could ever know. But I think it's also one of the most elusive and complicated things that we can try and grasp. Uh, I recall that um, when... Jocelyn went to meet the principal at PLC for the first time. Uh, They have a little... Every prospective student has has an interview with the principal. Um, And we all sat in this room and uh, his very first question to her was, so who is Jocelyn? Now, I thought that was a pretty intense philosophical question to put to a 12-year-old. I'm not quite sure how I'd begin to answer that question. Not surprisingly, she didn't have a whole lot to say. although I probably would have been more disturbed if she was able to wax lyrical about herself in the third person for five or ten minutes. It is a big question, isn't it? Who are you? Now, we might choose to describe ourselves in all kinds of ways, particularly in relation to others, especially our families. So I'm the son of Alec and Robin Arkapur. I have two brothers. I'm married to Catherine for 22 years now. 22 wonderful years. I'm the father of two daughters. We can describe ourselves by what we do. Uh, I'm a minister in the Presbyterian Church of Australia. We can describe ourselves by our place in our community. We can describe ourselves by the tribes that we belong to, affiliate ourselves with. So I'm a Christian. Uh, I'm a member of the Sydney Swans. Don't rub it in. I like coffee. I like running. Some of it might have to do with geography and culture. 
I grew up in the bush, uh, but I'm really a Westie, a Sydney-sider, an Australian, a Westerner, but the grandson of Russian immigrants. Our gender, I'm male, our age, 45, socioeconomic standing, I think I'm middle class, I'm really not sure, uh, our education, our qualifications, degrees in engineering and theology, all of these things have a, a bearing on our sense of who we are. And how my sense of self has been shaped is likely very different to how yours has been shaped, or even perhaps by how people in earlier generations had their identity shaped. Now, many ancient cultures teach that uh, your identity is very closely aligned to the place where you belong. Uh, we find that idea in Aboriginal Australian cultures as well. You know, being on country is vital. And so if you found yourself living in a new place that was unfamiliar, you literally wouldn't feel yourself. So closely tied to your sense of place was your sense of self. And as I know some of you have, if you've ever moved from one city to another or from one country to another, one culture to another, you'll know something of that sense of disorientation, which is really more than just a homesickness, isn't it? It's, a, it's, it's an overwhelming sense of disconnection with who you were and who you now are. So who we are, our sense of self, is a really complex thing. It's formed over time. It even changes as we are shaped by life's experiences. In many ways, I view myself differently now as a 45-year-old married father of two than I did as a 17-year-old student. But at the same time, I also feel the same. I am the same person that I was. Culturally, there's been a, a big shift in recent years in how people view themselves and how people define their identity. Uh, we live in a culture of rampant individualism and we're also encouraged to, to look within ourselves to discover who we are, to discover our identity. In fact, we're told that we can decide for ourselves who we will be and even to forge and define our own identity. We'll use expressions like follow your heart, chase your dreams, but above all else, you must be true to yourself, your authentic self. Such is the rampant nature for our appetite for self-identification at the moment that there are people who even seek to self-identify as part of a racial group to which they don't inherently belong. Uh, you might, actually you may not recognise this person, this is Rachel Dolezal, I don't know if you've heard of her, but she got a bit of press back in 2015. She created a bit of controversy because she was forced to resign from a role that she held within an organisation in the States called the National Association for the Advancement of Coloured People, the NAACP. Uh, she got her role because she had told them that she was African-American. Turns out she was not. Uh, when they looked into it, uh, she was very much a white woman. She'd lied about her racial identity. But get this, rather than apologise, she went on the front foot and claimed that she self-identified as an African-American woman. 
she says she's transracial. Born to Caucasian parents, but identifies as African-American. Now, I've heard a couple of chuckles. You might think that's ridiculous. You might think that's amusing. But don't hear me mocking her, because this is where our culture's ideology is going. This self-identification takes us here. What do you think? Should we affirm Rachel's right to self-identify as belonging to a racial group that she has no biological or genetic connection to? Does the African-American community in the States have the right to tell her that she doesn't belong to them, that she is not one of them? Is all this so very different from a person wanting to define their gender, a gender which is inconsistent with their biology? See where I'm going with this? Should other women be allowed to exclude men who self-identify as women? Well, you might want to ask J.K. Rowling what happens when you pose that question in our culture. See, in our culture, the right of the individual to define their own identity, even invent their own identity, has become absolute. And everyone else is now morally obligated and perhaps soon will be legally compelled to acknowledge that choice and affirm it. These are all examples of the dilemmas that our take on modern uh, self-actualisation and, and self-identification creates for us and poses for us. Is it helping us? Are we any more comfortable in our own skin? More content? More resistant to the perceptions and opinions and judgments of others? I doubt it. I think as a society, in many ways, we're now more dependent on the consumption of fashion, the latest technology, other goods and services so that we can feel good about ourselves and who we are. It's fueled by social media in a way that we, we kind of can project ourselves into the world as a, as a kind of a brand, as an image. Rather than becoming some sort of rogue nonconformists who don't care about what other people think, we seem to be just as good now at finding ways of conforming, just as dependent on the validation of others for who we are. Our sense of self is no less fragile or fickle. In fact, perhaps even more so, because it's now depending or based upon our feelings. So many of us are confused and lost. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that the old ways were necessarily better. I'm not pining for a return to sort of Victorian social structures. You know, if you were born 300 years ago, your identity was often locked in at birth. Your class, the educational opportunities available to you, your station in life was often locked into this narrow band of parameters. Things that were chosen for you, imposed upon you by, well society, by your family. Being an individual wasn't a very strong concept and all of that was very much secondary to your family and your community and even your national obligations. You had to learn your place in society, not go out and try and find yourself. As more traditional cultures impose an identity upon you, 
And so your personal preferences, well, they were not to be given serious consideration. So what to do? The traditional sense of self, where we look outward, where we look to things like duty and our roles and responsibilities within our community, all of that can be suffocating and oppressive. But the more modern way, where we look inward, means our sense of self, I think, is even more fragile, dependent on the fashion of the day, the affirmation of others. And this shift that we're experiencing, I think, has led to a fracturing of our sense of self and and our identity. Those things that used to give us a sense of belonging, kind of traditional organisations and authority structures and cultural institutions, many of those have been abandoned, certainly devalued, And now we flounder, trying to invent our own identity, find some purpose and security in that. So what do we do? Well, what if there was someone who made us? Who made us with purpose? Who made us for a purpose? Someone who made each of us unique? distinctive, who intended us to be who we are? What if we could find and know our true selves in relationship to that creator? To know our true selves, but not in a way that somehow suppresses us or diminishes us. What if there was someone who knew us completely and loved us perfectly? What if there was someone whose love was not dependent on our performance or on our achievements, but a love that was offered freely and graciously? When we tie our sense of self so closely to the approval and love of another, that approval can be lost or taken away. Someone might change their mind and decide they don't love us anymore. They might abuse the trust that we place in them in that relationship. They might try to manipulate us or use us, perhaps place certain conditions on their affections. Or we just might lose them altogether. They may pass away. And so the loss of their presence and their approval undoes us. I want to suggest that it's only the unconditional, eternal, constant love of God that provides us with the identity that we need. We read about it in that passage from Romans chapter 8 earlier. It goes this way. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Then skip on down to verse 38. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. Know that you are his and you will be forever. Hear what God is saying to you. 
Nothing can separate you from his love. God is for you. So much so that he gave up his own son so that you could be his, so that you could be known by him, know that you are loved by him. This is what Christians mean when we talk about being in Christ. It's an inclusion into something and into someone that's greater than ourselves. Yes, being in Christ means our standing before God is, is right. We are at peace with him. But even more than that, it's about being in relationship with God. And here we're told that nothing can mess with that. Nothing can undo that. Nothing can get between God and his children. This is an identity which God gives us, which cannot be shaken. God wants us to be confident in him, confident of his love, confident of his presence with us, and so to be people of faith. That is learning to trust God, no matter the circumstances, no matter the difficulties that come our way or have come our way in this life to know that God is in control to know that he is at work in us that he's doing a work work forming us reshaping us forming our character into one that more resembles his more resembles our Lord and Saviour Jesus and so when we know who we are in Jesus We know that we have an identity that reflects the very image of God, the one that God created us to have. And it's an identity that transcends our family, our culture, our work, our achievements, our other relationships. It it doesn't diminish them. It doesn't dismiss those things. It doesn't say they don't matter. God has formed us that way, made us that way. He understands that all of those things are important and essential to who we are. That was his plan and purpose. Those things form a part of our sense of self. But none of those things are to be the defining characteristic of who we are. Now, of course, God is sometimes going to need to shape and correct our thinking around who we are. You know, our hearts aren't always to be followed. Our hearts, our intuition cannot be trusted implicitly. They can lead us astray. All of us are more than capable of justifying ourselves, sometimes when we're plainly in the wrong. And so God wants to both envelop us in his love, but also to to teach us what is good, what is good for us to to show us the kind of life that both honours him and is good for others too. And so God does a work within us, placing our identity and those other things within our lives that matter to us in the right order. So our, our family, our heritage, our tribes, our different gifts and abilities, the things that we love, our interests and passions... All of those things can be valued. But we recognise that they're not the things that ultimately define us. There's a point in one of Paul's letters. It's a letter to the church in Corinth. 
and he talks about how he feels free of other people's judgment. It's a very kind of 2020 thing to say. He says this, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I don't, do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Now, notice here, the first thing he says is that I don't care if I'm judged by you. Very modern, kind of individualistic thing to say. Um, but then he goes on to say, I don't even judge myself. His point is that the verdict, the opinion that really matters is God's. Not the approval or disapproval of other people. Not even his own self-assessment. Whether or not that comes out as a self-affirmation or some kind of self-loathing. Ultimately, only God's opinion, his verdict, is the one that counts. And God's opinion is that in Christ, you are loved, you are his child, you are certainly worth making, you are also worth saving, and you're worth knowing. And nothing can take that away. And nothing can change God's verdict, his opinion of you, if you are in Christ. In the gospel, and that's what this is, we find an identity which both challenges us and affirms us. It recognises that we're broken, that we're flawed, that we're in need of forgiveness and restoration. But that is a work God gladly does on our behalf out of love. So we don't need to pretend to be someone that we're not. We don't need to pretend to be something that we're not. We can simply rest in the wonder and richness of our Creator's love. It's a powerful thing to appreciate who you are in Christ. And I think it enables us to face and confront and cope with the many awful things that we're likely to experience in this life too. Things which come to form a part of our identity, but sometimes in a painful way. For some of us, our identity has been corrupted because people who we should have been able to trust, who should have loved us, have failed us. And that can have a great impact on how we view ourselves, our sense of worth. Some of us are struggling because we're grieving the loss of someone that was such a big part of our lives and we feel lost without them. These things which form such a big part of our identity, our family, our relationships, when they are painful, it harms us. And I don't want to pretend that there aren't wounds, there aren't scars, ongoing impacts from those sorts of experiences. Yet, even those things ought not to define us. They are not who we are. They may have happened to us. Of course, they affect us. They'll even change us. But they don't need to rule over our lives. There can be healing. There can be restoration, and Jesus offers that as well, if we'll allow him to.
He calls on us to trust him and to hear his voice above all others where he declares who we are to him, that we are loved, that we are wanted, that we are treasured by him. When we know who we are as a loved child of God, it frees us to identify in a healthy way with how God has made each one of us to give thanks to him for all the good things that we do enjoy in life, for those things that have formed our identity, our family, our work, even our own personalities with all of its limitations but also our great capacity. Those things that we love, we're passionate about. We can celebrate all of those things. Give thanks to God for them, enjoy them. We can marvel at the complex and beautiful identity that God has formed within us. But we don't need to seek our meaning and our approval in the eyes of others. We don't need to indulge in the folly of pretending that we don't really care what anyone else thinks. We can rest in the new identity God has given us in Christ. And so, to truly know thyself, start here. You are perfectly known and perfectly loved by God.